Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you doing today? I have been better, but I am on the mend. Thank you very, very much. And I'd just like to remind you, because we keep getting questions about this, this podcast is once again not recommended for children under three, as it is a choking hazard. Please send all of your lawsuits to Air Canada. So we're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the Aurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the game we reviewed last year. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And finally, our topic of the week, by popular demand and by much storm and drawing on various fora, hidden trackable information. We are going to put it to Bedwalker. This area of great controversy. I've decided it's going to be really easy, Mark, because they should know what we're about to say. So that's <laughs> that's no, no, no. that's trackable. If and they've then been we paying just, attention. And then we just won't, re- we won't record. We won't, we won't, we'll pretend we're recording, but we won't just do it. It'll save so much time. If they'd been paying attention to what we've been saying over the course of the past few years, they would have remembered, and so we won't have to say it again. Absolutely. It's true. So, Walker, what did we review last year? Cosmic Frog. Oh, so good. So good. <laughs> As in, if Mark didn't have a copy, I would immediately buy one. You are godlike galactic frogs springing through the stardust, gorging yourselves on planet shards, bringing it back to your little hovel and regurgitating it in. It's it's. A fat, fantastic game. It's so strange because my enthusiasm for Cosmic Frog is such that I get a little bit nervous when introducing new players to it because I everything that Jim Felly at Devious Weasel does is so idiosyncratic. And Cosmic Frog is by far the favorite thing of his. That, And I, I, I'm worried that there might be some people that don't like it. But so far, Cosmic Frog appears to be one of those crossover things. The people who love to jump on people's faces and pound their, pound their silly frog maws into the dust really enjoy it. People who like little spatial puzzles and maximizing their score, like arranging little lands. Now, sometimes they get a little bit upset when their stuff gets stolen. But if everybody internalizes that mindset, I, I've been very, very pleased at the reception of lots of different types of gamers have had to Cosmic Frog. Because sometimes you and I really get enthusiastic about something, but it only really works when you're kind of, and I'm trying not to boast, but when you're as much of omni-gamers as we are, some people aren't like that, but oh, Cosmic Frog's so good. It's definitely a mindset. Like you said, you have to like it all. It's action uh, maximization, because you have to make sure you're bringing in the dirt. You got to see what other people are doing. You see if they're in space or they're close enough to drop kick you, or do you have time to sneak off the the giant shard and get back to your home without getting booted in the gut. All sorts of things. Cards, art, theme, it's all there. Two comments about that. One of them is 
there are art prints available of some of the artwork available on the, the Devious Weasel website. I've been meaning to order some, particularly of the Ravager, because it is impossible not to look at the Ravager and conclude that that is a frog living its best life. And number two, I am told there will be an expansion. I'm very much looking forward to that. And that is the game we played exactly one year ago. Actually, I was looking at the list mark. It's like the Ted, the head chasing the tail, and our tail is is winning. We're quickly catching up. For whatever reason, I don't know why. Well, it's because time is an illusion. Ever since COVID came, it's, it's all just March 2020 now. So. so the games we played this week, and some of these we actually played together. Mark, it came, it's here, it was on the table this very day. Wonderland's War by Druid City Games, designed by Tim Elsner, Ben Elsner, and Ian Moss. So what you're doing in Wonderland's War is it is a bag builder. You're doing what they call a tea time or tea table phase where you're four actions of going around the table and drafting these cards that are going to put chips in your bag. They're going to give you player powers. They're going to get you quests. They're going to let you seed the five battle areas with your supporters. And then once those four phases are over, you're putting your leaders out on the board and you're going to the battle phase. And then in each of those five areas, the people that are involved are pulling chips out And whatever their value is, they go up the battle track and you're either dropping out or busting out or, and whoever has the most gets to put out castles, gets points. And that's pretty well Wonderland's War without going heavily into it. The push your luck element is, I think, supremely well done in Wonderland's War. Because unlike most other area majority contests, the followers that you're putting out on various contested areas will not contribute to your strength. And this was actually a subject of mild confusion to one of our players. Dewey quite recently, like, look, while I've got four followers there, I start at four strength. No, no, no. They contribute zero strength. The way that it works is every time you pull one of the bad results from your bag, you lose a follower. And if that was your last follower, you're done, you're gone. Doesn't matter how well you were doing or how poorly you were doing, you have busted and you're completely out. And that, I think, was supremely well done. I thoroughly enjoyed that aspect. It really gave a lot of texture to whether you want to stay in, what it is that you want out of the conflict, because as you know, one of the great innovations of the past, say, 15, 20 years of conflict games is sometimes not even that you need to win. Sometimes a loss or a strong third showing, even in the case of Wonderland's War, can be just what you need. And I really, really appreciated that element. I thought it was very, very well done. And it was the glue that kept the battle system and the bag building system together. Yeah, like you said, and there's different ways. You might not not even care who wins. You have a quest that says you have to end up on a forge symbol, or you have to have so many cubes out, or you have to end up on a specific space. Or you just want the forge symbol. Exactly. All of these things are very cool, and I I don't want to hype it up too much, because what I wanted was a Quacks of Quiglinburg, but with more game, and I think this delivered exactly what I wanted. I'm wondering if there is enough decision space for the time it takes to play the game. That's my concern as well. All right, you are, the, the chips don't evolve over the game, it's the same chips from the beginning, although you're getting more level two chips, or there are level ones and twos, so you are eventually getting level twos, but... Not a big deal there. So it's pretty well the same decisions being made over and over again. The battles are still exciting because you're getting better chips, more stuff. So that's there, but it took a lot of time. Don't underestimate the effect of the increasing quantity and variety of Wonderlandians that enter the game. 
So players get more special powers as, as the course of the game progresses. Part of this is based on your own map. Part of this is also based on just a, a rotating series of special powers that do get introduced. So there is that. But I agree with you uh, that the time, that it is a very, very, very long playing game. It's one of those games where every individual action is very small, but you have to consider what you're doing. And just the sheer volume of small procedural elements accumulates and accumulates. And suddenly you're in a two to th- two to three hour game where really I think the quality decision making I think is better suited for 90 to 120 minutes. I'm not even sure how much experience will bring that time down because again, it's just a lot of stuff happening. And I wonder if the game would be preferable with three or four players. We played with a full complement of five. And so I don't think the game would lose much with three or four players. You'd still have a lot of instances where everyone's at each other's throats in these different areas. And you wouldn't have, I don't think, have too many uncontested fights. And the game also encourages people to get into fights because winning an uncontested fight is much less lucrative than winning a contested fight, which I thought was a clever little flourish. But I agree with you. The length is an issue given the quality of decision-making involved. True, but I'm glad we did it five players and like sort of got that out of the way so I don't have it in the back of my mind. Wanted to try that again. While we are all here to gratify your secret impulses and just to satisfy whatever curiosity you have. So I'm glad we were able to fulfill that. But it is super fun. I not regret anything about it. I'm definitely going to keep it and play it some more. So there's some talk about the setup and teardown of this game. And when I heard that, oh, it takes so long and to do both. And I went, ah, they probably just, it's their first time. They have to decide <laughs> which cards they're going to play and take on the chips. I said, oh, I'm sure I could do it very quickly. No, no, you cannot. <laughs> we talked about before where these uh, gamer trays actually hinder the setup. This is the worst one I've ever played. This one deliberately gets in the way of you setting up the game. Well, not quickly. deliberately. But yes, it is. It's deliberate. But it does so very effectively. Does, that's for sure. Whatever it, it tends it, to do. It's so, it's so good. It seems like it's deliberate. So yes, it's definitely, I'm going to be getting rid of all of those trays, putting the player components in a bag, handing them out. And I think then the setup and teardown will be much better. Oh, I agree. As it is, the, the given player components are spread out amongst many different wells and different kinds of wells and all manner of things across and different, different boxes, trays. right? Different yeah, boxes. Yeah. 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 No, if it were just a question of here is the bag of soldiers and we put it on the soldier card, but they could have four different versions, but that's governed by the different cards and just hand everybody their components. Here's your green components. There we go. We're good. I, I think that likes, but I think considerably. It wasn't even the setup that was so obnoxious. The teardown was even worse. And so I agree with you. This is one of those cases where the plastic insert does you no favors. That is Wonderland's War by Druid City Games. You also got to introduce me to Decorum. Decorum, which is a game of passive-aggressive home decoration. And I think this is one of those games that really thrives on its framing and its presentation. Because what you have is basically a positional abstract where every character has three different conditions that they want to satisfy, and they're entirely arbitrary. So, for example, in my game, it was the color of an object cannot match the color of the room directly above or below it. And it's like, well, this could be about home decoration. It could be about anything. But they did a very, very good job in the theming. I would contrast this actually for That Time You Killed Me, which is an abstract game that tries to theme it around murder and time travel, but there are enough points where it doesn't satisfy that I I, I felt that the deception wasn't perfectly successful. I I mean deception in the the most flattering possible way, sincerely, because game theming is very often about misdirection and deception anyway to make you forget that you're just shoving plastic and cardboard around. In the case of Decorum, it is explained that you're all living together, but you don't really talk to each other. And so you have to make sure that the house is to everyone's satisfaction without any open lines of communication. 
which is delightful. And so you're encouraged after every move to just issue general comments about, it's like, oh, that lamp is the most hideous lamp imaginable, and I can't believe you put it there. This is disgusting, and you have ruined my life. And this is genuinely what the game tells you to do. It reminds me of the glorious role-playing elements that you're going to find in some of your... Uh, more successfully framed games. That, that, uh, was, that was my grandfather's statue. He, he, he gave it to me in the hospital room. He never loved you, and I know that for a fact. <laughs> and so it, it's really a triumph of, of theming over actual gameplay. Not that the gameplay is deficient, it just it was mind-boggling to me. Because, again, I, I'm not really good at positional abstracts, and my, my conditions were very counterintuitive to me. And I would just stare at my card, and they were... In the face of it, simple. Just in combination, I was like, wait a minute. Okay, anytime there's a yellow room, the, there has to be a blue object. And every time there's a blue object, the room has to be yellow. Okay. And then in combination with a couple other things, parsing and reparsing the conditions did not come naturally. But I was there for the passive-aggressive and, uh, sniping. That sold the experience to me. Yeah. I couldn't even tell you why we won. No, it, we sort of fell into it. It was sort of a, a sort of little bit of luck, a little bit of skill <laughs> um so yes and we're just playing on the lowest level like don't even yes. want to imagine difficulty when level it, one when yes. it gets harder we played we streamed this on saturday as well with some players are used to playing that kind of game and they parsed out what other people's objectives were without a problem in some cases and and really? those are the types of players that you need not us bumbling around. Maybe we should have turned the lights on in the house when we were painting it. That <laughs> might have helped. Well, no. Like I said, I could barely, on my turn, when I had a, 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 a move to make, I could barely find a way to advance my own conditions, let alone attempt to interpret what other people's conditions were. I, so I, I don't even really feel comfortable saying that I actually played the game. I was there. I saw the game being played. I touched several of the pieces. <laughs> so it, I, long story short, I would be interested to explore it again, see if I could maybe contribute a little bit more, internalize a little bit more of the game state. But as I said, I was there for the role playing. It was great. True. And just a quick note, just so people know, uh, after everyone's taken five turns on how to modify the house, they modify the house in, in different ways. After five times of doing this, you get to piece a pa pass a piece of your information to somebody else. No, you piece a pass. Is what a piece of pass yeah, yeah. of the pizza to Patty. And then, so they sort of know what your pain and anguish is. Like Mark said, <laughs> you, you it's have the empathy phase. Yes. Yeah. You, have, you have your three objectives and then you, someone else knows your pain. Yeah. There, oh, geez. There was, I, like I say, it's a miracle that we won as a cooperative game. It was very daunting in the beginning, but then it, eventually, at least when I knew a little bit more about what other people wanted, I could get a slightly better sense of what was going on, but not necessarily a solid sense of how we were to get there. <laughs> And again, the, the, one of the one of the lovely bits of, of flourish because this is one of those times where it's very clear that the game knows its satire. They explain that you express whether or not the particular move has left you fulfilled, not if it satisfies your victory conditions, not if it, your criteria are being met, but it is explicitly framed in terms of fulfillment. And I thought that was great. <laughs> so that was Decorum, designed by Harry Mackin, Charlie Mackin, and Drew Tenenbaum. Released by Floodgate Games. We also got to play a game called Crescent Moon. This is designed by Stephen Mathers and put out by Offspring Games. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. So in Crescent Moon, everyone has their own faction. 
And not only does that want, they play completely different than they have different starting components, different ways they start on the map, different ways they score victory points, different ways they get income and trade and different actions they can do. Very different. Some things are the same. Some are different. Then there's this giant, I shouldn't say giant. There is a large row of cards that everyone gets to buy from. And everyone has their own faction cards, except for one faction. And when you buy the faction cards of someone else, they get the money. And when you buy your own faction cards, you get a discount. So it's a game of definitely action efficiency. Because in a standard game, you play three turns, which is 12 actions. So you really need to know how to maximize points using those 12 actions. This is very much in the same kind of design thread as Root or Dune. In fact, I felt some of the most strong similarities to Dune in that the fundamental economic model rests on how the different factions work asymmetry. So one of the great genius innovations of Root is that there's a large number of factions in Root and you have a large degree of freedom in terms of which factions are in play and the game will still function. The same can't be said of Dune and the same cannot be said of Crescent Moon because although they're all heavily asymmetric area control games, in Dune and Crescent Moon, the economy only works because there are certain roles being fulfilled. And in point of fact, you can only play Crescent Moon with four or five players and there's no faction flexibility whatsoever. If you play with five, you play all five. If you play with four, you leave out the nomads. More on that in just half a second. And you're exactly right to emphasize on the economy because the economy in theory is fascinating. In practice, due to the incredible parsimony of both actions and money, we didn't see a whole lot of interesting movement as far as that was concerned. So if you have the ability to, say, purchase one card... You might say, oh, well, I might want to buy that card. And that would, you know, have m money moving around and lead to some of the interesting faction dynamics. And maybe then you would want to wheel and deal with the Sultan, who's the, who's the character who can sell cards from their own private market. But then you might realize, well, wait, this is a twelfth of my game. I only really want to do this if I can do this maximally efficiently. And I can't because I have zit next to zero cash. Okay, well, I better go do something else. This kind of logic applied to nearly everything I did in the latter two-thirds of the game. So like I could do these other things which rely on interesting levers to subtly influence how other characters work, but that would be very inefficient. So why don't I just focus on my own narrow short-term goals and just pump the same levers over and over and not engage with the interesting stuff? Uh, that left me very disappointed. Yeah, it made a lot of the actions useless, like you said. Not necessarily useless, but a lot yeah, lo grossly inefficient. Agreed. And it does have the one thing I guess Root and Dune both have is you need to keep everyone in check. You can't just... You know, let someone fly off in the West and and just concentrate on your own thing. You either uh, take it easy on the person you're attacking right now so they can deal with the person in the West or uh, trade with them openly so they have the funds and everything available to them to slow down the person that is running away with the game. The most interesting aspects were precisely where the asymmetry of Crescent Moon led to specific moments of interaction that could lead to some cool bits of negotiations. Like, so, for example, I said I was going to return back to the Nomads. Most factions in the game rely on mercenaries, and the Nomads can sell you mercenaries, or you can bribe their existing mercenaries with their consent and convert their units to yours. So you have the more traditional military forces who just raise their own armies and go and 
march across the board killing people. But the nomads really are the root to military power for the other two factions. And indeed, the other two traditional military factions can still deal with the nomads. And that part was really cool and consistently cool, especially since, again, leveraging military power without the nomads' help was very difficult for many people at the table. So there we didn't have a choice. We had to go through there. We could ignore the cards. We can ignore a lot of the other elements of, of weirdness because it was just too expensive or too inefficient. But we had to go through the nomads, and that part was great, especially since the victory condition of the nomads is just to buy victory points for the most part. So they're in the interest in getting every penny, sometimes cutting less advantageous deals because the market's been slow for the first little while, and so you can exert some advantage there. And which leads me to one of my other chief concerns about Crescent Moon. I would never want to play it with four players because with four players, the nomads go away and suddenly you're buying mercenaries from the bank at a set rate and you don't have that interesting other consequence to, to consider. Agreed. And like we talked about earlier, it's like such a closed system with money. If one part shuts down where you don't get that influx of money, then there's nothing there to go around. And I thought that was odd. And the fact that some people's main strategy just doesn't seem to be working for them. Like you were supposed to be training cards. That wasn't happening. I was supposed to be good at combat. That was not happening. Stuff like that. Yeah. As a consequence, there's this very interesting ecosystem of both an economy and of special powers in Crescent Moon. But we found ourselves performing mostly the same actions over and over again that did not use those cool interactions. Again, with the salient exception being with dealing with the nomads. And as a consequence, I was reasonably disappointed. I think you would have to either change how the economy works in terms of money or changing how the action economy works. I couldn't help but compare it in my head to how Dune works. Dune is not one of my favorite games, but Dune at least had the idea that, okay, if cards are going to be so important, we're going to have the phase at the top of the round where everyone buys cards. And so the economy will necessarily be implicated, and it doesn't cost you any extra action economy. And in Crescent Moon, when, again, you've got 12 actions over the course of the entire game, and one of them is to buy cards, like, well, that might not be happening very often, especially if one bit of the economy, either action or money isn't quite precisely calibrated because we suspect on subsequent playings, things might flow more smoothly. We might get more of those interesting bits of interaction. But quite frankly, if the fragility is such that on our playing, it just didn't happen, or if it relies on the precise combination of factors happening, eh, I would prefer in this case, a little bit more rigid round structure like Dune. It's like, well, now we're buying cards. And, and the fact that you need to play it multiple times in order to see it come to light, just the barrier to entry, like this is a huge teach teaching everyone's faction, all the, just the game in general, and then everyone's different things they can do. It's well, that's a, the tragedy. Because even in our first play, like I said, I, I don't know if you, you had this experience because you wouldn't necessarily as a faction deal with the nomads in the same way. But in our first play of Crescent Moon, we saw those bits of promise. Yes. Precisely, usually when dealing with the nomads and maybe one or two actions in the early game with respect to how the card market worked. But after that, when people ran out of money and the income didn't manifest itself, everything just shut down and we proceeded into a relatively boring area control game. So it's a shame that the other bits of interaction and asymmetry didn't work the same way as the Nomad Mercenary Supply did. And the fact that the Mercenary Nomad Supply just does not exist in a four-player game. So that was my chief disappointment with Crescent Moon. However, I will say that Crescent Moon at least uh, listened to its cultural advisors. So there's that. There's that. Yeah. It, this is relevant because Crescent Moon is a sort of abstracted representation of the growth of the Arab world from roughly the 12th century to, I don't know, maybe the 15th. And 
although it's presented and it looks very much like something inspired by the cultures that it's meant to represent, you don't get a whole lot of Orientalism or, ooh, the exotic mystical East or any of that nonsense that tends to permeate a lot of other thinly themed or less well-researched games. So I do have to give credit for the creative team. Uh, Stephen Mathers was the one who designed it, as well as to the artist, Navid Rahman, who also served as one of the cultural consultants for Crescent Moon. I think that is is very much visible in the end product, and so congratulations on that score. That was Crescent Moon. Next up, we played Gutenberg. This is a game by... Kanarina Chok and Wojciech Wisniewski. Put out by Grana Games. So in Gutenberg, it's the dawn of the printing press. And you're taking in orders and you're printing them on paper or you might be printing on leather even. Doing your chisels, getting better at writing, all of these things. So you're taking the orders, you're trying to fulfill the orders. You have these fantastic components of these gears turning and these wooden letters. And all of this comes together in a very interesting action selection initiative system. Plays quite quickly. Not a terrible thing to teach. I continually enjoy our games of Gutenberg. It is a slightly elaborated order fulfillment game where basically all you're ever doing in Gutenberg is satisfying all these orders. And there's it's kind of a two-tiered order system whereby there's the base level of do you have these appropriate letters and that will give you some amount of money. And then there's some level of, as we termed it, bedazzlement. And if you're able to bedazzle it appropriately, all of which is optional, that is where you can start getting points. And so it's very focused in terms of how you're going to be scoring points. It's very focused in terms of the number of different kinds of actions you can do. The tracks are all very simple. They're just prerequisites for various levels of bedazzlement. It's not like there's some weird track where it's like, well, I go up this step. Ooh, now I get two points. I go up this other step. Now I get a camel. Now I go up another step and now I get a bull weevil and whatever. And so I appreciated its level of focus. It's got a little bit of player interaction because you've got to do a simultaneous bid in, to determine player order. And that is it. You don't have a good sense of what other people are going at. At least I didn't on, on my playing of it. But nonetheless, you do have to worry about what, what the other players are doing. And I did appreciate that. And you're right. It's, it's a level of streamlining that you don't tend to see in games of this weight. So everything hangs together very, very well. And the components are shockingly pleasing. They didn't seem to have to spend a lot of money on the components. Like, for example, they made clever choices. The boards are single layer rather than dual layer, but nonetheless, you have this very clever and satisfying gear laying uh, mechanism. You don't have to worry about metal coins, but instead what you have are lovely wooden letters to really sell the theme. Which, so I think they were very smart in terms of how they designed the components and in terms of how they focused the gameplay experience. Gutenberg was very pleasant. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, and you have... Asymmetric player powers as well, which are all very good. There's just the right level of detail. Yeah. I, I don't think that that much more in terms of elaboration, in terms of the mechanisms, or in terms of the underlying economy would have been for the good in Gutenberg. So as I say, this, this I think either they had a very, very good editorial mindset or they had a very good developer or team of playtesters that were able to pare the design, design down. It's not minimalistic, but it's at least focused. And that is Gutenberg. Played a game of Jekyll versus Hyde. This is the two-player trick-taking game. Played a number of times on Board Game Arena, and this is the first time playing in person. Walker, I feel you've been holding out on me. You didn't tell me that it had this lovely chunkers oh, metal the, marker. Yeah, that you could beat your opponent with if they just try to beat you. Yes. I didn't know that's what you were supposed to do oh, with it. Gotcha. Um, but anyway, 
I did appreciate it. It's very quick. It is very satisfying. I do appreciate the early turn jockeying for Trump priority. The potions continue to confuse me. I'm not sure how to use them cleverly. It's the one bit of special powers or or at least of special events in the game of Jekyll versus Hyde. Other than a couple of corner cases, I tend to be just very confused. But that's on me, not necessarily the game. And I do somewhat regret that it is the kind of two-player game that is sufficiently unbalanced, or at least regarded as sufficiently unbalanced, that the common response on the part of the designer is to say, play two games back-to-back and see who does better. That, ideally, I'd I'd prefer if things were slightly better balanced. The the common consensus is that it is easier to be Hyde than Jekyll, and my playings both online and in person have certainly borne that out. I don't know if it's the kind of thing that you could easily solve, but the upshot is that Dr. Jekyll wants the two players to win the same number of tricks every round, and Hyde wants blowouts, either in his favor or in Jekyll's favor. And quite frankly, it is very easy to pivot. You can look at your handy figure, I'm going to win every trick as Hyde, but it is shockingly easy to then just pivot and try to lose every trick. So they, Hyde has a degree of flexibility that Jekyll will never ever have. I wonder if it's just a question of putting another space or two on the track itself. That's what I'm I was going to sure. say. You can just modify the track a little bit maybe and that might fix it up a little bit. Or you can just say that I always win. I mean that would uh, work too. That works yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. So I, I enjoy Jekyll versus Hyde. Uh, trick taking has definitely gone in a lot of different directions over the course of the past five years in the hobby market away from the more obtuse cumbersome bidding standards of, of under trumps and super trumps and more towards small player count and or cooperative fare kind of like Jekyll versus Hyde or Fox in the Forest, either duet or normal version, games of that ilk. And I very much appreciate that. And so Jekyll versus Hyde, very pleasant, very pleased to return to it and to play it in person. The Chonkers metal component is indeed very delightful. This is designed by GNL, put up by Mendu Games in 2021. Well, Mark, we like Andreas Stedding. So I got Stroganoff just based on his name alone. No pre-reading, no Nothing else. I shouldn't say I got it because this particular copy that we played was a review copy from Line Rampant, but I do have a deluxe version coming, so I had no idea what to expect. The art and all the layout seemed to look as though it was going to be some sort of historical war game type setting. It is not. It is sort of an action efficiency type game where you're, you're trappers or hunters and you're going into the, the deep of Siberia and every space... There's a bunch of different regions and there's several land areas in each region and they're all populated with all these different furs. So you're trapping, you're getting these furs, you're using these furs to... I think they're called animals, Walker. Animals? I think the furs are on the animals. Okay, you're slaughtering and skinning the animals. Okay, I didn't... We didn't need to be that explicit (laughs) about it, but all right. And like I said, there's all the regions and each region has their, uh, their specific animal, so you can use that particular skin to get more actions and every turn you get a basic action and then you get a secondary action which could be a basic action but then there are advanced actions which are uh, doing the king's favor or the czar's favor I should say or going to the village or doing the yurt action so all these different things that you can do in each landmass and you even you even get to buy the landmass eventually if you get the timing right it's very interesting timing seeing what furs other people have Watching the whole thing slide down, because once you buy the landmass, you're adding more to the end, and the whole thing slides down. And 
sort of seeing it's like okay this landmass is in in the beaver pelts this turn there's there's no beaver pelts but say the fox pelts and then it slides in you can see next turn new france expansion next yeah that's right next turn it's going to be in the elk pelt so you can sort of you know figure these this these timing things out i definitely want to go back to stroganoff looking forward to playing it again and it's put out by game brewer i'm looking forward to trying it i'll have my own copy like you, I will try anything by Andreas Stedding on the strength of Hansa Teutonica alone. But Gugong was good too, so I also like the Stouffer Dynasty. And I will once again not make my joke about how he made the Stouffer Dynasty and later on he made Stroganov. It's terrible. It's just too bad a joke. I'm not I'm not gonna put it on the airways. I'm not. Not it's not no gonna ma- be recorded. You're not gonna let anyone else hear it. No matter how many times you beg me, I'm not gonna say it. Thank God. Got to try Arc Nova. I've been wanting to try Arc Nova for quite some time because people have been talking about Arc Nova. Arc Nova is the kind of sort of polyomino, not really game, the kind of sort of tableau builder, not really game, the kind of sort of action selection game, not really, that for a variety of reasons has been compared to Terraforming Mars, and then people say, well, it's not really like Terraforming Mars. Okay, let's start off with, with first things first. One thing that it does is it uses the same action selection mechanism that Civilization A New Dawn used. Namely, you have a row of action cards, you select an action card, it has a certain strength based on how long it's been since you last activated, and then it goes to the beginning of your queue. And so you're constantly juggling between trying to pump the action you really want to do versus doing the action that is most efficient. And that trade-off is great. Very much like Civilization A New Dawn, in Arc Nova, you can even upgrade your action cards. So it even has some of the trappings of the Civilization genre in that sense. So you get new kind of sort of technologies, but not really. And I also really appreciated the fact that contrary to a lot of modern Euro designs, they resisted the urge for there to be many different tracks. There is, in point of fact, only one track. That is the Prestige track. For some reason, the icon is a mortar board. Generally, the iconography in Arc Nova I wasn't a huge fan of. So I ended up getting this impression of my animals going to university. So basically, my dugong has a PhD walker. Oh, that would make you very prestigious if you had it. Well, it's a PhD in communications, but still. Yikes. So Dr. Dugong and I are very somewhat muddled on the iconography. Here is one way in which it is very much like Terraforming Mars, I think. Arc Nova is very reminiscent of Terraforming Mars in that you have a whole bunch of card prerequisites based on tags. And so you end up playing these cards just to generate tags. This is a great way to sap a lot of the personality of a card you're playing. It's like, well, I've got this red deer. I'm not playing the red deer because I want a red deer. I'm playing the red deer because it's got the right region tag, which will then give me a discount on the, on the next card. That is, is, is one problem. And in point of fact, you're encouraged when playing out your cards to overlap all the information so that all that is left is the tag of your animal. I mean, come on. That just seems like a missed opportunity. And again, Dr. Dugong does not like to be covered up. Dr. Dugong likes to shine for all the world to see. More troubling to me, though, and this is something that I complained about last week in the context of Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, it is one thing to design a bunch of mechanisms, or indeed in the case of Ares Expedition, to steal a bunch of mechanisms. It is another thing entirely to attach that to a deck of cards that is balanced and well interesting. Whenever I look at the work of Tom Lehman, whenever I work at the look at the work of Eric Royce, it is immediately evident how much care has been made in terms of curating the deck such that they all have their place, they're all interesting, and they all work together to create a balanced, ga- good game experience. Here's my upshot with Arc Nova. 
All the levers I'm pulling, I really enjoyed. I really appreciated the trade-off of having to build the enclosures to hold the animals, and money is very, very tight. The two different kinds of points and the way they interact with each other. I even liked the track. I even liked the prestige track, Walker. Although, again, I wish iconographically they could have been a little bit more transparent about when it mattered and when it didn't. There was persistent confusion about when the track mattered and when it didn't because it coexists with the card market and is only sometimes relevant. The part that I really felt disappointed, though, was all the cards, which is a shame because that's what the actual game is. I want the me- the mechanisms of Ark Nova to be grafted on a different fundamental game engine for two reasons. First of all, maybe something with some player interaction. That'd probably be nice. But number two, the cards are all over the place, and there's not enough throughput over the course of a given game to actually get you anywhere reasonably to guarantee a good game state. Let me be more specific. And again, I'll compare it to Race for the Galaxy. Is that fair? Nope, but it's what I'm going to do anyway. In Race for the Galaxy, almost all the cards you will see in any any given go through the deck are playable. You just have to pay for them. And indeed, if you don't have the cards you need, you can relatively trivially engage in actions that will let you see a large whack of cards at once from which you'll only be able to keep one. In both Terraforming Mars and Ares Expedition and Ark Nova, this is not the case. You will see a small number of cards at any given time, and many of them are completely unplayable at various game stages, even near the end of the game. Oh, have you played four predatory birds from Australia this this game? No? Oh, you're not playing this card at all. And so imagine if it's the case, as it was in this game, where some people who had played the game before and some people who hadn't are looking at their hands and saying, I can't play this, I could never play this. I could maybe play this if I really worked hard. I guess I'm keeping this one card. This is a thing to do, I suppose. This is the game we're playing. Wee! I'm not saying that all the cards should be trivially playable. But again, in a game like Race for the Galaxy, you can make trade-offs to work towards playing a card. Rather than saying, well, this card is unplayable unless I magically pull from the deck the necessary cards I need to be able to play so that I could later play this card, and that's even setting aside the actions and the money necessary to play it. And that just made me so frustrated. The person who won our game of Ark Nova, and they won in a landslide, was because they kept pulling cards they could play trivially. Oh, here's a lizard that I can put in my lizard enclosure for free. Great. Again and again and again, and everyone else is pulling like pandas. Yeah, you ticket to ride that right up. Yeah, 100%. So one person is drowning in a sea of pandas, because pandas won't trot out for anybody. Pandas think they're cute. Pandas want the show. Pandas want the special treatment. But the special treatment got to be found in the deck first. Them uppity pandas. Meanwhile, somebody else is drawing lizard after lizard that wants nothing more than maybe a little corner of sun, and they're perfectly happy to come out for anybody. And, of course, there's a whole bunch of other clever, but mechanisms that reward who's already winning. It's like, oh, you were able to go and get that achievement early on? Congratulations! Have your income shoot up by a whole bunch. And that income will then let you progress along the track, which then gets you more goodies. And again, mechanistically, all of this was great. I loved all the levers. I loved everything that was going on. But the way that it interacted with the fundamental meat of the game, namely this huge deck of cards that were all over the map, no pun intended, completely sapped any appreciation I had out of the game. Just wait for the expansion. Where they add even more cards. Yeah, no kidding. You just weren't milling enough, Mark. The game doesn't you, let you mill very you, effectively. You need to deck mill. But that's the problem. The if be- you're gonna... The best mechanism in the world. I know. Well, look, setting all that aside, this is not unique to Euro games. This is not unique to Tableau Builders. Card-driven war games have been doing this for years. It's the case that you've got this system, and the system may be clever and good, and then you just make the deck ruin the experience. 
I honestly found Ark Nova very frustrating because I wanted this applied to a better game. I don't know if I'd be inclined to play again. I mean, it's just the, it's just such a massive random influx of weird noise. I I just don't I just don't get it. How they could get so close to making something very good and compelling, and just not put in the effort or not understand how incredibly constricting that is. Ark Nova. So that was my experience with Ark Nova. I really liked a lot of it. Just that last five percent, just completely. Well, five percent in terms of you know details. And it's like, and then you draw from this deck, and the deck might hate you, the deck might love you, but in any case, it will be a frustrating experience. You need to just be able to turn on a dime, Mark. You need to be able to, you know, web and flow with the with the get cards you're getting. Let me I'm be. Just, perf- I'm, I'm just I'm just priming you. For I know. What you're, okay, but let me let me just be perfectly explicit. It's not even the influence of luck that I'm primarily concerned about here in terms of Arc Nova. It's just that you're going to be getting this relatively small volume of cards, many of whom might be completely unplayable, many of whom might be very situationally playable based on other cards you're going to pull, and some of whom will only synergize with other cards which you may or may not see. There's just too large a universe, too high requirements for a lot of these cards, and quite frankly, the pandas are just giant rats. I mean, come on. There, I said it. I said it on air. I said it. The pandas need to get over themselves. That's Ark Nova. Well, I'm hoping to give it a try, actually, this week. Someone in town has a copy, so I'm hoping that I'll get a chance to play my first actual real game as opposed to Tabletop Simulator this week. We'll I might see. even be willing to play it again because, again, I love all the yeah. all the mechanisms. They're so good. I just, stupid deck, man. Lastly for me. Dr. Dugan doesn't approve. Another Game Brewer game. Also a review copy from Line Rampant. It's called Hippocrates. I think, Mark, this is where the Hippocratic Oath might have come from. It's a long shot, but I think it's true. Yep. So in Hippocrates, what you're doing is you're sort of – it is a little bit like clinic. You are bringing in uh, these patients. You are hiring doctors. And the doctors sometimes come with medical kits. They'll give you the different color of medicine that you have to – that each sort of patient needs to get better. Like this one needs a purple – green this one needs to blue and then the doctors are hexagons so they will be able to distribute distribute medications from their their certain sides they'll tell you which medications <laughs> it's, I, I guess it's their you know their their what they're good at they're you know, I, i'm imagining a modern version of this where the the doctors are these robots with just yes uh, a syringe sticking out of every vertex i, I think that would have been a a, a better <laughs> theme than this had but anyway yes it didn't make much sense so and then you're and the the way it they interacted was pretty interesting like physically like the it was a hex that had a little you know puzzle piece on it so the the patient fit nicely onto it and if you covered all of the sides of that doctor they would retire and and you'd get points for them and you wanted to have the most retired because you had to pay for your doctors at the end of the turn. So it was very much this odd balance where you wanted to treat all of your patients. You could get about three a turn because they had this very, I don't want to say convoluted, but an interesting dice system. You rolled all these dice on these four different columns and there was, it would tell you which patients were available unless you manipulated the dice around to get the other patients. And you wanted to get all of the patients in because all of the new patients are the ones that gave you money immediately when they got admitted. So you wanted to make sure you were nice and clear so you'd get three new patients because the money's very tight in this game because you need to hire the doctors and then either buy the medicine or buy the med kit that comes with them. These patients sound pretty stupid if they're paying up front. It's true. 
And then just like clinic, they get uh, worse over over time. If you don't treat them that turn, they'll go down to the next level and then eventually die and hurt you for victory points. But you could also create this puzzle where if this one, if this patient needed purple, purple, blue, this doctor only gave out purple. So they sort of connected this way. And then you sort of, you're making this like sort of spider web of doctors and patients. <laughs> so it, that way it was kind of interesting. I definitely want to give it another try. Some of the rules were a little shady in some parts, but Hippocrates from Game Brewer, it's kind of neat. Even like the little medicine bottles you're giving out are these little plastic and they're all in different shapes. And it was kind of neat. I will refrain from commenting on the Hippocratic Oath and how people don't know what it says and how doctors today do not, in point of fact, swear the Hippocratic Oath. And that is a good thing because the actual Hippocratic Oath is nonsense. Finally for me, on the topic of games that are like Clinic, we played Clinic Deluxe. And I have to say a change of mindset and a change of framing definitely made the theming work a little little bit better. I really – this is really on me. The game is a satire from beginning to end. Everything in clinic is a satire. Just for example, as a detail, you talked about how, you know, patients get sicker over the course of things. In clinic, patients only get sicker when they've been admitted to hospital. If you don't admit them to hospital, they don't get sicker. It's little details like that that initially you look at it and say, well, this is kind of thematically incoherent. No, it's not. It's satire. It's making fun of modern medical practice. How you're basically running a parking lot with an, with an appended surgical wing rather than the other way around. So that definitely made me appreciate the experience an awful lot more. What this really highlighted, though, we played with four players, and we had played with higher player counts before, but this, I think, was the most pointed the issue ever got. At the end of the day, you're entirely at the mercy of what patients are available. That's the only way to make money. Everything else loses you money. I cannot speak to the one of the 50 modules where there might be some other way. I don't know if you can open concession stands and start selling chocolate bars from vending machines or what have you. And maybe that would be a chief source of income. I think that the better satire actually would have been if in clinic you could reliably make more money from the parking than from actually treating patients. That I think would have been nice. But anyway, setting all that aside, the problem is, is that the influx of patients can quickly become much too slow. And so you end up in the situation where you're, where the entire table is literally doing nothing because they have no patience to treat. Yeah. I, I just looked at, you're encouraged to make this giant hospital with multiple wings, multiple treatment centers, and you're going to get 10 patients a turn for four players. So you don't get to use this giant hospital you built, yet it's still costing you money to build this giant hospital. So I'm wondering, in the end, is it worth creating this giant hospital or just creating a single wing and just go all in on patient manipulation? Well, I, in this game in particular, and I felt that I've, I've commented on various things like this in the past when playing Clinic, most of my decisions were done about halfway through the game. I was then just hoping to get the right patients out of the bag and then hoping that turn order didn't randomly screw me out of the patients that I wanted to get. And then failing that, if I still couldn't get good patients, I would just take whatever patients I could, let's sock them away in the waiting room, wait for them to get sicker and hope I could treat them later. In terms of hiring, I was mostly done by about halfway through the game. In terms of building the hospital, I was almost entirely done by about halfway through the game. And then it was just, you know, maintenance. Why would you expand? Why would you bother building more rooms when you can't treat any more patients? And your income is effectively set at a hard cap. And the difference between doing very, very well on a turn and doing very, very poorly on a turn is entirely based on the random combinatorics of who decided to seek the patients when. 
So I, that part I felt very, very unsatisfying. And we looked through some of the modules, and as I recall, there weren't really many modules that in the early parts of the, of the module selection system that would address this concern, which I thought was very striking. No, there's all sorts of, of modules that added different or more cubes to the bag. Right. But the actual action of seeding the board with more patience I have yet to find anything. But that being said, maybe these other modules are what are supposed to keep you occupied with these wasted actions. It's like, okay, I'll do <laughs> I'll do this other thing that no won't necessarily give you more patience, but it'll make those patients that you do treat worth more money. Like getting your gardens better. Good point. Doing the air conditioning, the all of those other things. Maybe it'll make maybe. I wanna make I wanna make money off my parking lots. When can I make money off my parking lots? I'd have to go through them. There's 50. I can't remember all 50 of them. <laughs> and that was Clinic. Clinic Deluxe Edition by Alban Villar. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, I have it written here. Is this news? Twilight Imperium Roll and Write. <laughs> of course. Of course they're going to have a Roll and Write. What's not going to have a Roll and Write? Doesn't it have like four sheets? I'm sure that probably. Yeah. And it'll take eight hours to play. Uh, probably not. It'll probably it'll probably take four to eight times longer than it should. On Twilight Imperium news, Mark, there is something called the Twilight Imperium Codex, which is kind of neat. I haven't been on a Fantasy Flight website in a long time. Somehow, <laughs> yeah, I got, why would you bother? I know, right? <laughs> I got a link for whatever reason, and it is a a sort of a monthly magazine that they're putting out for Twilight Imperium that mm. has all the updates and changes and sort of erratas. And in this month's uh, edition, they have a whole new race. That you can play. Oh, well, I thought it was I, like that kind of support for a game. I Absolutely. just, I really enjoy. Good for them. I just wanted to comment on the the short lived Kickstarter campaign for Anunnaki: Dawn of the Gods. This was by Cranio Creations. I was intrigued because this was another game by Simone Luciani, one of our favorite game designers, and I do really, really like a lot of his work. And I even really like Barrage, largely because Barrage, although released by Cranio Creations, I have the retail version. I didn't have to go through all the Kickstarter drama that it did in terms of its fulfillments. Long story short, Cranio Creations has a bit of a checkered past with respect to their Kickstarter campaigns. They've all been fulfilled. I'm not, I don't mean to suggest they've ran away with people's money, but there have been rampant complaints about the nature and timeliness and quality of customer service and the nature of the components they eventually got and various people feeling that the promise, that they had overpromised and underdelivered. Anyway. So this time they've decided to put their best foot forward and run this one without a hitch, right? That's what you're about to say? Well, that was certainly their intention before they canceled the campaign. So a lot of the hallmarks were there saying that they only needed a certain amount of money when clearly they needed vastly more money than that. I'm not going to blame them too much for that. They didn't invent that game. They were just playing it. Uh, the cost of the, of the game, though, was really high. We're talking like 160 euros for the version with the expansion. Part of that is just because things are getting more expensive. Entirely not their fault. Another part of that is because they were charging everyone VAT. And so this was an opportunity for people outside Europe to basically pay European taxes and then pay domestic taxes on top of that. This is an increasingly common tactic. Uh, and as someone who does not live in Europe, I'm not terribly pleased with it. I'm very sympathetic to the fact that customers in Europe have, generally speaking, got the short end of the stick for many, many a year from many, many publishers. The correct recourse, though, is to not start gouging everyone else. Now, there are some ways around this. Uh, for example, Awakened Realms, during their Lords of Ragnarok campaign, they said, look, we're going to charge everybody that, but... 
for the shipping costs for everyone outside the VAT regions, we will subsidize it by the cost of whatever you're paying the VAT. So at the end of the day, you didn't end up paying it, and they were able to cover the VAT for the people who needed to cover the VAT and not cover the VAT for people who didn't. So good good on them for that. Uh, they didn't do this. The craniocreations did not do this for Anunnaki, Dawn of the Gods. But I can tell you really why the campaign was canceled, Walker. Because the Norse faction did not have tier on it. Hashtag no tier, no sale. Make this a thing. Hashtag no tier, no sale. Zero to ten unplayable. Absolutely. If you're not going to have tier, why bother including the Norse gods at all? I am sick and tired of Thor getting all the credit, of getting all the love and thunder, pun very much intended. He does not deserve that much attention. He is not very interesting. He's just loud. And I can tell you, based on what everyone has told me, Mark, just because you're loud doesn't mean you're more interesting. Tier deserves more credit. Hashtag no tier, no sale. Lastly from me, we all love Firefly. From Gale Force 9. Do we have to? Yes. Yes, you do. Everyone has to love Firefly. Firefly, the deck building game. Natch. Soon to your local store shelving. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to Hidden Track. Why am I keep using that? I'm going back to that voice too often. It's because you have a sense of drama. <laughs> now for Hidden Trackable Information. Oh, that's less dramatic. Now for hidden trackable information. Based on how people react to hidden trackable information on, on occasion, the sense of drama is certainly appropriate because some people react as though it's a monster crawling out of a lagoon <laughs> to eat their true. face. There is a lot of drama. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of drama surrounding hidden trackable information. So I think I think right away we could just put our cards right on the table. And We're not going to keep them secret? <laughs> no, tell me what they are and then hide them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's safe to say that, that you and I, Walker, neither of us have any particular objection to hidden trackable information. No, and I think there's some exa examples here where I think a lot of people are playing games with hidden trackable information that they didn't even realize or even consider. Uh-oh, are we going to have to get into definition? No, no, not at all. I just think when you go over it, like at the very beginning of the rule book, it gives you like the number of components in a game. Oh, I right? see. And a lot of things... You know, it just doesn't matter. You just play it. It's like, okay, there's 30 of this resource. No big deal. But it does matter, right? When when it's, it's given true. out and some people just don't even consider it for a second. It's like, no, but that is hidden trackable information. No, it's true. And I, the, the, one of the reasons why this topic came up was because we addressed it briefly in the context of our review of El Grande. And a number of people, both on our uh, Patreon Discord and on the Guild, took up this idea of hidden trackable information. What, people on the internet had something to say? I know, no no kidding, right? And specifically, there was the comment that the Yukata implementation of El Grande does not have hidden trackable information. And precisely what they say, there are two ways in which the Yukata implementation of El Grande differs from the published version. Number one, the number of Castillos in, uh, the number of Caballeros in the Castillo are not hidden because they didn't know how to implement it properly because they figured people could just take notes and or check the logs. And number two, there's no veto because they just couldn't figure out how to implement it properly. So this was purely a, tech a technical change, not any sort of change because we think we, this makes the game better, which would be a somewhat unreasonable thing to do in a digital implementation anyway. But that doesn't stop a lot of people who hate hidden trackable information from saying, therefore, the Yukata version must be superior because it doesn't have hidden trackable information. Well, same can be said for the new Catan on Board Game Arena. You can just go down the log and track all the resources people have gathered and, and, yes. and figure it out. But, but 
Well, th- well, that's the thing, right? Because fundamentally, at the end of the day, any form of hidden trackable information is the information is theoretically available to you. How much and what kind of effort are you willing to devote in order to get that information? And I think that for many people, and what well, we can tack a lot of other things onto that that you're willing to go to, that you're willing to waste other people's time. Yes. That you are willing to make uncomfortable situations and reduce the fun of other players at that table. More on that later. No, absolutely. And one of the things that I find really uh, frustrating about talking to some people about hidden trackable information, people can prefer whatever they want to prefer. If you don't want to play a game with hidden trackable information, or if you say, I'll only play that game, but if we play things open, that's fine. And I can then say, now nah, that I don't want to play that, we'll, we'll, we'll both play something else that doesn't have that information. It seems to be that people who go a step further, and indeed I've heard a lot of these claims about El Grande or any number of other games with hidden trackable information, to assert that, you, you know, if there's no hidden trackable information, that necessarily makes the game superior. It necessarily makes it a more pure strategic experience, what have you. And this just baffles me. It seems like tantamount to asserting that, you know, taking a train or taking a flight or walking are all equivalent because at the end of the day, you're going to get there. It's about crafting an experience, when a board game designer is making a board game, especially if they're doing it well, and especially when you're talking about talented designers like Kramer and Ulrich, they're not designing a game with hidden trackable information purely because that's how it fits the cog in the overall design. And to be, to be frank, I'm often guilty of this, right? Reducing a game just to the mechanistic elements. But what they're trying to do is craft, craft an experience, a playing experience. And in the specific case of El Grande, there's a level of drama and discovery. And I, I know that may sound overblown, or you may think, oh, well, that's only because you forgot. That's fine. Forgetting is a reasonable mental process that you can take into account when designing a game. And that level of tension you have when selecting where your caballeros are going to go, because you can't remember exactly how many everybody uh, put in the, the Castillo. And then that discovery when you remove the tower and you see how many are there, and you either realize that you gambled correctly or you gambled incorrectly. Those are moments that are were put in the game not by accident and not to accommodate stupid people and not just so that the game would proceed uh, more smoothly. I think this is the deliberate part of the experience when crafting the design. And to just smooth that away because you don't like it, I think is a bit narrow-minded. Yeah, and the fact that it fixes so many problems, like these exact information strategy games, well... Last turn, everyone's going to pile on the leader, or yes, or if it's a or if it's a cooperative game, then you're going to have this quarterbacking because well, we know all the information. So if you don't do this, you're an idiot because it's obviously the most optimal move. Or it'll have people sitting there mapping out every single possible outcome of the turn and take making the game take too long. These things are added to make, like you said, the experience more smooth, more fun, more enjoyable, better. Well, or at least. It necessarily changes the texture of the experience. If you don't like those kinds of experiences, that's fine. Some people don't want any drama or discovery in their games. That's cool. And I don't want to say that that's an inferior way to appreciate games. What I'm saying is, is if you remove the Castillo from El Grande, you are fundamentally changing the kinds of experiences the game is meant to evoke, not just tinkering with some of the underlying math. And I think pointing to co-op games is a good example, because a number of co-op games specify you can say whatever you want to say about your hand, but you don't show your hand or play it on the table. Other games say 
put your hand of cards on the table or, or what have you. And these, again, are examples of designers being able to deliberately trying to change the experience of the people playing the game. For good or ill, again, some designers do it well, some designers do it poorly, but it makes a difference. And so to elide these differences, I think, does a disservice to the design. And many people find it very, very helpful to avoid the so-called alpha gamer or quarterbacking problem to simply say, say whatever you want about your hand, but keep your hand private. Agreed. So here's a scenario that I that I saw today. Ooh, a scenario. Yeah, a scenario. So it's near the end of the game, and the player says, if I just buy this card, I'll win. Now, you know that not to be true. <laughs> right? But I've parsed, I've parsed the game state incorrectly. Okay. By virtue of hidden trackable information or by virtue of something else? By virtue of... That's one of the other things I have here. It's like when they make the game state so... You know, opaque. opaque or complicated. Or diffuse, yeah, that exactly. You can't completely engage with the whole thing, but you've gauged it out. You understand that there's that I cannot win even if I buy this card. But yes. I say like something, oh, look, I just need to buy this card and I'll win the game. And I pause for a moment and then buy the card and you say nothing. Like, what, what do you, <laughs> do you think that you've broken some sort of unwritten rule? No, I, I wouldn't go that strong. I'd say I've neither broken an unwritten rule, nor have I acted in accordance with expected behavior. I think it's it's somewhere in the great murky middle of optional behaviors. And what if buying this card ended the game? That was like either the last action or whatever. And then you announce, like really doesn't change the game state. You say, no, no, you did. I said, well, then I wouldn't have done that. You know, can I just go back and do something else? Like how? Right, but okay, so look. This is this is going a little bit. I, I don't mind the digression at all because it's it's, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting case study or scenario, if you will. A scenario. But there's a world of difference, I think, pragmatically between someone musing aloud and not correcting them versus answering a question. See, even in a competitive game with strangers or with close friends, doesn't matter. If somebody said, if I buy this card, will I win the game? I think I will, won't I? And then looking around the table, and then if everybody nods, and then the player buys the card and says, well, actually, no, it turns out you're going to lose instead. That strikes me as a bit ooky, because you were volunteering information there. Well, there was no nod. Say they just stood there and did said nothing. Right, that, but that's the different thing. But if somebody, on the other hand, constantly oh, declares the yes. result of their own personal evaluation, if I buy this card, I win, and you... I think the obligation to contradict them is much weaker than the obligation not to volunteer a confirmation of their false information. But I think there we're getting into very, very, very narrow hair splitting. But of course, as a moral philosopher, that's precisely the kind of thing I like to do. Yeah, it's like who's responsible for parsing the board state is what I have at the end. But on, on that topic, I hate parsing the board state when it's obtuse. And indeed, open trackable information is sometimes worse than hidden trackable information. Here's why. Here's the, circum here's the specific circumstance that I'm thinking of. If it is hidden trackable information, then either I remember what's going on or I don't. So there's no attempt to try to reconstruct the board state. If it's open trackable information and it's kind of obtuse, well, then I might feel the obligation in a highly competitive game, especially one with targeted aggression, before every action or between significant actions to laboriously tally everyone's board state. And that is some of my least favorite experience. Uh, those are some of my least favorite experiences in gaming. Pausing and saying, it's like, okay, well, how many points of missions have you claimed already? Nine. Okay, well, I'll add that to the three points you have on the board score. And if the game ended right now, how many points do you get from territory? This is why 
I really think that circumstances like that make hidden trackable information a lot better because there the game is forcing you to engage in heuristics. True. Well, this all goes to what I'm talking about is like knowing your audience, right? So we picture a a chess tournament, right? No laughing, no trash talk. Both players have their heads down. They have a unspoken contract that they've agreed to this type of atmosphere. Yeah, that is the expected social environment at a chess tournament, yes. Where at a at a game group or at an open gaming night, you're there to have fun. Yes. You're there for flow. Well, let, let's, 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 let's not assume that the people at the chess tournament aren't having fun. True. Well, I didn't say they weren't. I'm just saying <laughs> at the gaming. Okay, fair uh, enough, fair enough. You've come there to have fun, to enjoy a game, to enjoy some social interaction, and that's the agreement that everyone should be under when mm-hmm. they went there. So if you're there and you're writing down information, you're recalculating the board state every turn, that is not what the other people have signed up for. I don't know. I, 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 I agree with you. I'm there with you. It's just I've seen enough comments from people about hidden trackable information that lead me to believe that maybe that isn't the shared expectation of everybody. Like when I say these people saying, well, hidden trackable information makes the game less calculable and therefore less good. I'm like, but more calculable doesn't necessarily mean more good. Again, because there are different kinds of experiences you can design for different kinds of contexts. And I mean, there are there have been games that differ from each other only by virtue or at least practically only by virtue of whether or not they have hidden trackable information. Like the trade from uh, uh, Vinci or Winky, depending on how you want to pronounce the Latin, to Small World, one of the key changes was that scoring was hidden. That was pretty much it. In point of fact, a very common variant when people were playing Vinci, even very serious Vinci players, a very common variant was to make the scoring hidden for precisely the reason you identified very early on. Because otherwise it was bashed the leader from the start to the end. And to be frank, this is a bit of, a, of an abstruse point, but I hope you're going to follow with me. One of the comments, common criticisms I, I see of hidden trackable information is something along the lines of games shouldn't reward good memory, which seems like an strangely essentialist claim to me because games, first of all, aren't just a skills test. Again, they're about creating certain kinds of experiences. And secondly, games can reward any number of different skills. How good of a liar you are, how steady your hand is, whether or not your eyes dart to the side at the wrong time, any number of games can can influence that. How good your memory is, how good your sleight of hand is, how good your organizational skills is, how good bluffing. your heuristics are, bluffing, like you name it. And so the notion that that memorization should necessarily be off the table seems a bit strange. But anyway, even, even if that's true, even if memorization is not a skill that games should reward... When it's a completely open scoring bash the leader fest like Vinci often redounded to, instead what you're then rewarding is just a different type of calculation where it's like, well, if everyone's going to be basking the leader, I want to be in, I need to be in second place, but close enough on the penultimate turn and make my surge at just the right moment. So I'm in the lead only at the end of the game and never before. And what does this rest on? Weird manipulation of turn order, strange pulling back at odd moments, an equally arbitrary set of constraints. And in my estimation, a less satisfying group of constraints. And breaks almost every game down to like sort of like a, a discussion Right, because you're right. pointing out, you know what I mean? It's like sort of like this give and take, well, I'll attack this. You know what I mean? It, yeah. It, you know, like a debate. Yes, a, a, a debate which frequently boils down to whining. And so between rewarding memorization and rewarding whining, I'll pick memorization every day of the damn week. <laughs> Have you ever played Tigers and Euphrates with open scoring? No, that would be pointless. That's it's, silly. It's super painful. So it there's, is there's actually so two, painful. I, mean, I have a list of games here, but Tigers yeah. and is one. And there's two. There's not only the scoring, but there's also, like I said, the number of tiles. Yes. 
And a lot of people just don't, you know, I just happen to get the colors that I get, right? And yeah. you sort of go with it. But it's not the same for all colors. If you look at the cut, you'll see that there's X number of, yep. of, of red, X number of blue, and you can sort of, you know, manipulate what you're doing by knowing what tiles are out there and what are left. No, I agree with you. And and it, I operate, come to think of it, I haven't thought, thought of it in those terms. Uh, but the people who want to play Tigers and Euphrates with open scores don't tend with the same ferocity to insist that we maintain an open and public accounting of all the tiles that have left the game so that you can have a more precise understanding of the distribution left in the bag. But really, I mean, they should, and it's strange that they don't. And I operate on the same basis. If somebody scores seven points in green off a conflict, I just say, well, they're probably not going to be looking for green. It's a very simple heuristic. I love playing by heuristics because it makes me be lazy and it lets me enjoy the game. That's how I like to enjoy the games. Again, no shade if you want to be more calculationable, calculational, but again, recognize that in some cases you're changing the design intent from the designer. Similarly, if there's a huge conflict in blue and 12 tiles leave in a conflict in blue and then a whole bunch get removed from the board, I have it in the back of my head that blue's probably going to be underrepresented in the bag from now on because a whole bunch just left the system. And you're right. It works on the same principles. I'm saying, and these people that say that it's not good, do they not play any card games whatsoever? The traditional deck of cards is strictly based on hidden trackable information. Well, it's not as trackable, though, because you the, only, the, the, the defense would be, so say you're playing Bridge or Euchre or whatever. The only information you need to track by default is just what you got dealt in your hand. But you know there's so many of this number of seven, so many of this number of this suit. Oh, you mean as tricks get claimed? Yeah. Oh, I Or see. even in the deck from the beginning of the game, you can look at your hand and say, well, if I have this many hearts, then there's only this many hearts left out there. And if it's, you know, four people out there, then, you know, the average would be that this, you know, those have this amount of spread. Like the whole traditional deck of card is based on trackable hidden information. I don't know. I, I have to, I, I just have to say straight up, and this is an entirely a prejudice on my part. The people who insist on no hidden trackable information ever, I kind of perceive as viewing themselves above traditional card games anyway. And I know that's entirely unfair. And I apologize to anybody who's listening here streaming at their, their podcast player that we're completely wrong to be defending hidden trackable information. I don't mean to assume that you're a joyless bunch. And yet here we are. <laughs> I have a bunch of games, but let's go over the ones that... Uh... Let's. We just we talked about today, Wonderland's War. Even says in the rule book to keep your tea time cards to the side so you will know what chips are in your bag. Oh. I, I didn't see anyone do that today. Why would you? The whole fun is reaching into the bag and, <laughs> and, and, and seeing what you've pulled out. Well, Wonderland's War was an example, actually, when I was thinking of, of the most degenerate setup when there's targeted aggression, the one that I hate the most, that I was just talking about. There is a score track. And sometimes in Wonderland's War, you're encouraged to, or you're forced to hand someone negative points. And normally what you would do in such a context, the default assumption is you give it to whoever's winning. But the score track is a poor proxy of that sometimes because there's all the quests you're about to satisfy. There's the amount of points you're going to lose at the end of the game. There's whatever points you might be sitting on by virtue of a strong bargaining position and blah, 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 blah. And so fortunately, we didn't redound to that. But in lots of conflict games where you have to target aggression, you end the whining phase. Like, well, I'm going to target you because you're in the lead. It's like, well, I only seem to be in the lead. Let's everyone tally up all our scores because the score track only tells part of the information. Exactly. Ugh, I hate that dynamic so much. Crescent Moon, hidden victory points. Yes. Decorum, completely hidden 
objectives, right? <laughs> right. And well, it's, it is trackable. No, it is trackable. Like, it is, like, yes. like we talked about, if you are watching what people are doing and you can somehow surmise, you could you could sort of say that's trackable. But there at least it, it's arguably a deduction game. And so there I think even the people who hate hidden trackable information would probably give it a pass given that it's the entirety of the game is just to suss out what other people want. And then the same as in clinic. You have the bags of doctors and you have the bags of patients. And you know at the beginning of the game how oh, many, heavens, how many, yeah. all the different colors are in those bags. And technically you can sort of figure out, well, I have a good chance of getting some red patients this day. Like, who's going to do that, right? Ugh. Oh, man. The, again, just hearing you explain all the ways in which you could seek to issue these calculations, it's, it's giving me a, a, like a frisson of dread just imagining playing the game that way. Just, exactly how I would not want to approach those particular gaming experiences. And and if you needed to track this stuff, Mark, imagine like first time or new players to the game or first time you're learning a game, not only fighting the rules or trying to learn the rules, but having say, hey, oh, and you need to you need to remember all of this other stuff on top of that. You know, well, yeah. where's the where's my little checklist for that? No, no, no. Remember that in your head as, <laughs> as you go along. Yeah, well, there there are weird social disagreements about whether or not keeping notes is against the spirit of various rules. Okay, let's play the memory game, and I'll I'll have a little pad. Okay, <laughs> well, I picked well, the, yeah, no, I, I'm with you. The I, I think serpent here, and my intuition is this is much weaker though at this point because I'm not I'm not I'm not on a positive aggressive booster of hidden trackable information. I'm a booster of games that leverage hidden trackable information well. But some people, there are some people who say, well, you know, the rules don't say I can't take notes. And then they start writing down everything. And it's like, ugh, whatever. The rules don't say I can't look at your discard pile. Yeah, I know. You Got do you. you. Die. Now, to be fair, and I, I, I just want to be perfectly clear, there are lots of circumstances where I do, in point of fact, track specific information. Uh, like, for example, uh, a couple couple examples just off the top of my head. In Blood Rage, there are a couple of particularly nasty combat cards that are very vicious to the winner. And I do pay attention to where they show up and who's got them. And I then pay attention to when they leave the game. <laughs> in Catan, when there's a particular resource you need, you remember who got that resource in that round. Yes. And also, we just talked about trick-taking games. You absolutely, I think everybody engages in some level of tracking. If you're sitting on the ace and the queen of a given suit, you pay attention when the king comes out. Because you need to know where that goes. Uh, and, you know, if you're very, very talented, you might even then go deeper down into, like, jack-10 and other things like that. But just at a minimum, or if you're sitting on the king, you pay attention to when the ace comes out. I mean, th these are these are very straightforward things. This is also hidden trackable information. But I think that it's one that, again, as you pointed out, I think most people are just more comfortable with but because they're traditional card games and key flower all sorts of hidden trackable information there the meeples that you draft every turn yeah who's got they the go green private stash how many yeah how many greens the person has or yeah. how many of a particular color and it's good because they can keep them from turn to turn so you don't even know what they kept from the, the previous turn so that even changes the mix even yeah. more but again th that's another great example of where there's heuristics I know who can produce greens, and so I pay some attention to who has greens. And I, if somebody has a building that produces lots of them, or if somebody lands a boat that's almost exclusively yellow, I just have in the back of my head, it's like, okay, they've got a lot of yellow. All right. And the last game I have is the best game that has trackable information. Cockroach poker. <laughs> you know there is eight of every creature. Yes. Someone says they're handing you a frog, you just look around the table, and you realize. But that's not hidden, though. They are a liar. <laughs> But that's not hidden. That is perfectly transparent from what's on the table. Well, it's hidden because because uh, 
maybe not every player knows there's exactly eight of every card. That right? doesn't it's make a, it hidden. That just no, means that some but, people are ignorant. That's different. Yeah, That's a different kind anyway, of hiding. But it's the same sort of, you know, it's the component list. There's X and, you know. The only it's part. Usually, it's not only, part of the game knowing that there's eight of every card. Oh, that's the kind of thing I mentioned in the rules explanation. I think at that point you have to tell people how many there are of a given thing. And the only part where, because that, that's that's one of the great elements of asymmetry in cockroach poker. Poker, you can leverage information that other people don't have and can never have because you know what's in your hand. If there are five cockroaches on the table and you've got three in your hand, you can catch people in the lie every time. But they don't. Other people don't necessarily know that, so it's not even hidden trackable. True. It's just hidden, but you have information that other people don't. And that's a way that the trick taking game sort of. Mix it up a little bit. They'll deal out the, like, uh, sorry, shuffle up the cards and take five off the bottom. Right. And then deal them out. So there's five cards out of the game. Uh, so much like No Thanks, where if all of the cards were in the deck, it would be pointless, right? So, you know, they hide away some cards, but there's no trackable way. No it's way not, you could track. You not, track not in the particular, not in No Thanks, but yeah. but in, in, in the other games. Well, again, I would argue you can start making inferences. But that's that's the level of analysis that I tend to like. I've commented before, I don't like it in Euro games when very early on in the game you start making these very, very granular evaluations. Like, okay, well, that spot can give me five, $5. $5 is basically a point and a half. This base can give me two tunics. A tunic is basically worth... Uh, three quarters of a point. So that's equal. Blah, blah, blah. Like last turn, fine. When you're just evaluating last couple of actions, you're just evaluating end game scoring. But there are some Euro games where that kicks in really soon. And I really don't want to be involved in no. calculations. All like I that. can say to that is be ready. Like when you take your <laughs> second to last turn, start making your calculations now. True. True. So when it comes down to your turn, then you're ready to go. You're not like recessing the entire well, board state. Well, that's just it. And that's what a lot of it comes down to, right? You and I will prioritize the social dynamics of the experience of the game over a calculational advantage. We will make that trade almost every time. There are very few instances where we're like, all right, guys, sorry. In order to maximize my position, I'm going to have to ask you to sacrifice some of your enjoyment of this experience. Almost never. But there are some people who feel, and again, I th at this point, when phrased at this level of generality, I'm not willing to say that they're wrong to do so. It's like this is a competitive in in environment. The social environment and the social dynamic is is predicated on the competitiveness. And therefore, within reason, I am at liberty to enforce a certain degree of pacing so that I can calculate out to my advantage because otherwise it, it would be detrimental to the convention of the game. I, I can tell that you're not convinced. Non-sympathetic to that point of view. Not sympathetic? Okay. <laughs> I mean, ultimately what I would rest on is, again, board games of all stripe, they're not just a skills test. They are to create a certain kind of experience. And when looking at El Grande, looking at Tigers and Euphrates, which are probably two of my favorite games that rest non-trivially on hidden trackable information, I have done the experience with heuristics, and I've done the experience without, and I will take the experience with heuristics any day of the week because the sense of discovery, the sense of fluidity of the motions of the plays, how organic actions take rather than a purely calculational, I need to take the leader down a couple of steps by virtue of the three over the four because I know exactly what they did. It's just how I would rather spend my hobby time, long story short. Yeah, same with me. Long story short, know your audience, people's time is very expensive. But by the same token, there are some people for who, uh, whose time is so valuable they are not willing to resort to heuristics. And they don't want to be surprised and they don't want to have their memory tested. I respect that position. I just don't empathize with it. 
And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us at So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at sowronggames.com slash contact. And we will read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. That is so wrong. What? What are you, what are you looking at me for, more? Contact. Oh, come on. <laughs> Last week, you said your email was just roll the dice at gmail.com. You said the very specifically. The dice, Mark. It's duh. I, I know that's what it is, but you said otherwise, and I didn't correct when, you. When did I say my email? Though? You know what? You know what? We're done. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we hope to see you again soon if I'm willing to sit across from this guy ever again. Peace? You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoeseiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.